This is episode 22 of the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast with Kathleen Howland. But now it's, it's hard to keep track of all of it. It's exciting. Um, every time, every semester I teach, I'm changing the content just a little bit because there's more and more that comes out, which is what makes teaching um, still exciting. Um, but if you were to look a little to the left of the camera view, you'll see a pile of research articles. There are books and books of research articles, as well as a massive number of books now on the topic, particularly through Oxford. And I just will never have enough time to read as much as I would love to, but I read all the time and I'm just more excited about what it's revealing. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Coyote, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, we have part one of my conversation with Kathleen Howland, who I probably should have known scheduling this conversation. There was so much to say. We could have talked for hours, so I had to split this conversation up into two episodes. So in this episode, we talk about... Kathleen's experiences as a music therapist, some research and how it ties into what we're doing, her dual credential as an SLP and an MTVC, and she is such a wealth of knowledge. And then in the second part of this episode, we got more into the things you can use in a session, tips for interventions to use, more specifics about all of the things, all the knowledge she has and Um, boiling them down to what we can be doing, I'm going to say, on the ground level when we're having our sessions. So I hope you learn a lot from these two episodes. I know I did. And as I said, probably a million times in this conversation, we'll definitely have her on again. Uh, Her openness to sharing and giving back to the community and uh, her generosity with her time and knowledge is so, so appreciated. If you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes. That helps this podcast be more visible and get out to more people. Also, you can join our group on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We're at Music Therapy Chronicles on all the platforms. And lastly, we have a Patreon page. So if you're looking for another way to support the podcast so we can keep it going, keep doing interviews, producing episodes, all that good stuff each week, please consider donating on Patreon. I'm going to be offering the exclusive opportunity to ask questions of the guests on Patreon. So when I have an interview scheduled, I will put a post out asking people if they have questions. Uh, Kathleen would have been a great one, I think, to have questions ready for. So definitely keep an eye out on that for a future episode with her. 
Alrighty, let's get into this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Kathleen. Thank you so much, Tricia. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. How are you doing today? Had a lovely day. Bit busy, but uh, enjoying the opportunity to sit and talk about one of my favorite things ever. Thank you. Oh, that's a great way to put it. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself to get us started? Sure. I am one of the happiest music therapists. Um I've always felt like it was the most wonderful profession, and I often refer to it as a beloved profession. So I've been a music therapist nearly 40 years now. Um, uh, I also got uh, a degree in speech language pathology, actually finished a master's in graduate and doctorate in that, specializing in music and cognition. So... um, after with this long arc of a history in the profession and looking at where we've come from to where we are is staggering, particularly in the last couple of years, and where we're going is really intriguing. Yeah, and I'm sure you have seen so much change in your time. Absolutely. Yeah. To see the conversation going from what is music therapy as if people knew nothing Um, to the place where people are saying, I've had this experience, and we get to sort of make distinctions or be supportive. Um, It's a whole different conversation uh, in my day, and certainly in the the people on whose shoulders I stand. We serve as people in stairwells, in boiler rooms, um, in closets. I mean, we took whatever work was out there. And now to think that we have choices is magnificent. Yeah. I think it's important that we take the time to look back on how far the profession has come and the pioneers who have gotten us to this place, because it's easy to focus on the challenges we still face. But Oh, absolutely. It's so encouraging to know that we have come this far. True. We have come so far, and I would say that if in my generation, and certainly the generation before, it was a dalliance for a second earning person, usually a woman in the household. This was never a profession that you really could buy your own home as a music therapist or have any of those sort of conventional living experiences, but now you can live comfortably as a music therapist. And I would like to see that pay, of course, go higher. And so I'm always uh, working toward advocating for that for my students and young professionals. Yeah, thank you. It's important that we have advocates <laughs> who, yeah. who are credentialed as you are very much so, and also yeah. who have seen the progression and are continuing to push for more. Oh, goodness. I don't know if you can hear my dog, but she's barking at something. I sure did, yeah. (laughs) All righty. So tell us about your training with uh, brain injuries, and you also teach, is it neuroscience? I do. Yeah. Tell us about all that. It goes way back, actually. I was working in the early 1980s at a DMR facility, a Department of Mental Retardation facility for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And there I had people with long 
list of disorders, intellectual disability, and medical issues, I worked on what was known as the infirmary at the time. And I would have this duality of being with them in my studio and having them occur so musically capable, so able, so engaged, so compelled, so motivated. And then I would take them back out onto the unit and they were just that long list of can't express basic needs, wants, can't walk, can't feed themselves, can't get dressed, all of it. And that duality was really bothering me. So at the time, it was Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences had come out. And I could say, okay, so music is its own intelligence, and therefore it gave me support in saying they were musically intelligent, but it didn't explain how they could, all of these myriad skills and attributes be in one person. So I thought it would be the brain, but neuroscience was really 20 years away until we started getting good technology where we were watching the brain in action or we were looking at it structurally. So I learned a lot of um, important resources like how to Medline at the time were these massive books, massive books. And I would run to the library at the facility every time one came in and look up music. And there was nothing but injuries like orthopedic injuries to violinists in their neck. Um, you were starting to see the carpal tunnel, but every once in a while I would be thrown a bone. And then I would have to wait months to get the article through interlibrary loan. And I was getting things in German that I would get, um, I was working myself to actually translate those, but then Hebrew as well. Um, so when the turn of the century came around and the neuroscience really picked up, it was feeding me wildly with the new technology and what was being revealed, not in music therapy practice, because we have to understand the normal brain first before we can understand the disordered brain, and certainly in music. Um, but now it's it's hard to keep track of all of it. It's exciting. Um, every time, every semester I teach, I'm changing the content just a little bit because there's more and more that comes out, which is what makes teaching um, still exciting. Um, but if you were to look a little to the left of the camera view, you'll see a pile of research articles. There are books and books of research articles, as well as a massive number of books now on the topic, particularly through Oxford. And I just will never have enough time to read as much as I would love to, but I read all the time and I'm just more excited about what it's revealing and how that supports both music therapy and music education. Because without music education, the people that we would serve will not have the fundamental skills that we can tap yeah. and modify and work with when they end up having issues at some point in their life. So most recently, I guess, what are some changes you've made to your syllabi or some new things that are coming out that you're, you're teaching your students? Can you give us a, a preview? Sure. So the class is psychology of music, which really now needs to be called neuroscience because psychology is just an old adage. But the thing that I'm really starting to understand and see and teach is that auditory perception is essential to the development of the brain. It's essential to the development of cognition, specifically attention, and the ability to learn language. 
and auditory perception is tuned through music in the last trimester of the womb moving forward so much so now that I can say very comfortably that music ideally maximizes the potential of every brain whether it's a child that's born with disorders or acquires one or is just neurotypical music trains the brain so all of these other magnificent functions happen and are fully realized and if you look at deaf people their reading is severely compromised, even with the best of education. And it's compromised because of the lack of hearing versus people who are blind have no issues whatsoever with uh, reading to uh, age level, college level, that sort of thing. But it's a real problem for people who are deaf. That's how essential it is to hearing. Um, and another new element within all of that is auditory perception being so critical to proper brain functioning that Nina Krauss in Northwestern is looking to identify a change in auditory perceptual capacities in people who have concussions that are not being read by the brain scans. That's, wow. I know. Wow. That's just beautiful. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. Um, it's great to see what we can offer to the medical field at large more than just helping a client or a group at one time. So that's so cool to hear. Yes. And when we talk about auditory perception in this way, and I was wordier than I would be teaching, but I got excited. But in talking about that way with physicians, instantly they understand what we're up to. And that's the bit I love is how quickly uh, neuroscientists and, and physicians are understanding what we do because of this shared language and because of this wealth of research that's coming out. Awesome. So hopefully for those listening, that gave you a little little insight onto the language you can use if you're talking to a medical professional and they are not understanding what you're trying to say yet. <laughs> so yes, that's the fundamental point. Auditory perception is basic to proper brain functioning. And we know how to deliver auditory perception and watch for signals that show it's too much, it's too little, it's right in the pocket. We're getting signs of attentiveness in somebody with a coma. We're getting a change in the suck rate of children who are born prematurely. You know, all of this um, is, is so exciting. And I do believe that this is our time. Yeah. So you gave us a couple examples there. Can you name any more examples of how we can, maybe things we're already doing and don't realize, to acknowledge those auditory perception moments and to communicate them to other professionals, whether that be you know a school teacher or a medical professional? Yes. I'm particularly fond right now of Nadine Gabb's work from Children's Hospital in Boston. And what they're showing is that if you're three years old and a child can't discriminate between patterns of music, whether it be rhythmic and particularly melodic, if they say that the pattern is different when it's the same, um, the lower that score goes, the higher the probability is that they will be dyslexic. Now, if you, I know, look at you. I'm making it's, a face for, you know, you guys can't see it, but I'm making a face. <laughs> it's a total... Uh, you know, mind-boggling 
uh, opportunity to look again at how essential auditory perception is. And in this case, if you don't hear the difference between a major second, you're not readily going to be phonetically decoding a sound versus a sound, an F sound versus an S sound. And therefore, the, the load that um, trying to learn to read starts to begin. And because of the early demands, now let's look at when we diagnose children with dyslexia and what that criteria is. In the school systems, it's generally two years behind age level reading. At that point, you've got a kid whose self-esteem is tanking. It's a third grader reading at a, reading at a first grade level a fourth grader reading at a second grade level. School is not fun. It's arduous. Without the diagnosis, they're not getting services. And then once they get services, they're already two years behind. But with this work, we could actually look at giving these exams to three-year-olds like we would hearing screenings auditor and, and visual screenings that we would do an auditory screening. We would tag those children who are struggling with that simple age-appropriate task, and then we'd start putting them in music education programs like Music Together. Let that advance their ear in preparation for this and for the reading demands that will come in two years. See, instead of being two years behind, we could be two years ahead of the ball game with music. And in that way, uh, families with congenital hereditary dyslexia may want to automatically get their children enrolled in programs like music together starting, uh, I think it's six weeks is that when you can enter. And you want to train the parents to be the best musical models and stewards for their child's development. That's great. It's great to hear about music being used as preventative, kind of preventative care in a way, instead of just... Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure where you work right now, like which clinical population you work with, but I'm thinking of my clients who are teenagers and still struggling mm-hmm. with reading. Mm-hmm. Well, and I serve on school board in my community. And the things that we know about dropout rates is it's a high percentage of people who have dyslexia, high percentage of incarceration for people who are dyslexic. So reading remediation is not a sure thing. It's not uh, the the key that unlocks the door, but music may be the one that keeps the door open in the first place, that gives the child the gift of reading and the gift of learning, which are taken away with dyslexia. Yeah, yeah. When you had originally been talking about that research, I was thinking that would probably take care of a lot of behavioral issues that come later down the road because of oh. that frustration would not be there, ideally. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Wow. It's agony when you watch kids, and then they get to the point where they can decode it, but they haven't been able to comprehend anything because they used all of their neural bandwidth to decode all of those sounds. And so their comprehension is really poor. They don't get a shot at comprehension because they're working too hard just to pronounce the word. Yeah. So do you have any ideas for how, um, say we have a child who 
has been diagnosed dyslexic or in a wonderful world where it has had this screening and we get them two years early, what interventions can we be doing in our sessions to help them and prepare them for uh, success in reading and comprehension? Yeah, if they're young ones, I think Edwin Gordon's music program from Music Education provides a lot of examples. You want to use a lot of discrimination tasks. Is this the same or different? Getting children to replicate either on instruments or uh, vocally patterns that they're hearing, and we can hear what they think they're hearing. Um, I would always want to use with young ones uh, a recording and let them set up GarageBand, depending on the age or whatever they want to do. But listen themselves. Did you sing the same thing that I played? Let Give them as much feedback and listening opportunities as possible. Get them matching pitches. Um, anything that provides auditory uh, discrimination is going to be of critical importance. Because, like I said, it's much easier to discriminate in music than it is in, in speech perception. That's why the music is ideal to get that brain tuned to that. Yeah. I'm just taking that all in. That's all such helpful information. So here's a bit on the other end, how important this is. Um, again, this comes from Nina Krauss, who's just like my favorite rock and roll star in neuroscience. Um if you had music training in high school and it stopped and you didn't pick up the instrument again and you get to be my age, you're 60 years old, you've got a hearing deficit. If there was somebody with the same audiogram that I have, the same hearing deficit, but did not have music training, I'm still going to be able to hear the speech sounds better than that person because of the training I had in music decades ago, even if you never pick the instrument up again. That's how being early on working with those critical windows affords you this uh, ability to still detect a signal in um, a sound and to make better use of that signal than somebody who didn't have the training. And therefore at a cocktail party can't follow one person's voice, can't pick it out, we can focus um, and, and have a trace of that. So it really is this long-lasting gift. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Oh, I love that. Seeing how it's so important at the beginning. Um, yeah. And so, and at the end too, the salience of those things you learn in, in a music class are still a gift still, for life. Yeah. All, all this, all the research, it's, it boggles my mind. <laughs> all of it. Wow. Awesome. Do you have anything to add to that? I just love listening to all of this. <laughs> well, here's another bit um, that I'm particularly excited about, and I wrote a blog about it on my website, that Glenn Campbell was an extraordinary musician of the 1970s, sold millions and millions of albums, was a multi-instrumentalist, was part of the storied wrecking crew um, recording group in L.A., and he got Alzheimer's disease. He was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and in fact, he was at mid-stage Alzheimer's. He had been symptomatic for 10 years before the diagnosis came in. It came on him slow, and I'm willing to bet that the thick neural circuitry that allowed Glenn to be the extraordinary musician he was 
was uh, a slower process for the onset of Alzheimer because it was chipping away at marble instead of soft sandstone. If you contrast that with the people we serve who have Down syndrome, 70 to 74% of them will get Alzheimer's. They get it in their 30s and 40s. And the Alzheimer's wipes them out in a matter of months because their cognition was so poorly developed, their neural circuitry was so poorly developed in the first place that the Alzheimer's wipes through it like um, fire through California. But if you have this thick neural circuitry that was built up in order to be a high-performing musician, this is the first example we have that maybe music would be neuroprotective. And I've taken a leap because one of the occupations that is safest from Alzheimer's are professors. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Because we uh, have extensive uh, learning, thick neural circuits, and like any circuitry, we repeat it, we rehearse it, we use it all the time. It's constantly engaged. And you can hear that you know, I was over in gerontology and now I'm over in neonatology. You're connecting all of this together. So professors have this thick neural circuitry and we know by occupation that is a lower order of incidence of Alzheimer's. So I'm making the leap because of Glenn's example, because of the film that shared his life with us. I'm willing to bet that music can be neuroprotective for anyone listening looking for a research topic please do a study on the prevalence of alzheimer's and dementia in performing musicians music therapists music teachers etc because i would yes. love to see that in 20 to 30 years that would be exciting and when you looked at um the film i'll be me um that was that was done when Glenn was diagnosed, he was booked to go on a tour for his last album. He and the family decided they'd go on tour anyhow, and that it would, they would take a stand for Alzheimer's research. Glenn on stage is playing old music, playing new music. He's improvising. His pitch is incredible. His patter with the audience was excellent because that too was rehearsed. But off stage, he was wandering. He was paranoid. He didn't know the names of his children any longer, and they were the musicians backing him up. You'll see over and over again that Glenn was a competent musician on stage, and he was a pathological person off stage. The difference in is night and day. It's it just blows my mind. And every semester, I give my students in Psychology of Music, a film during finals week, because I won't play ball during finals week like that. I won't stress them out. And we watch a film so the learning and the awe can continue, but there are no deliverables. Um, and I will give them a wide variety of films to choose every time they're choosing Glenn's film and they are blown away and I'm sitting there in tears I was like oh I have to watch this again for the third <laughs> time this week because I'm so deeply moved by it um, as I would be with any of the films they chose but they are just uh, in awe 
again, of the distinctions between him on and off stage. Yeah. And that obviously parallels what so many of us see in our sessions, what you mentioned before, how you're working with a client and that's a completely different persona than when they are done with the session. Yeah. As Oliver Sacks gifted us with the phrase, the abilities nested in disabilities. Um, and I think he's been one of the major catalysts back to our previous conversation. One of the major catalysts that have brought us to where we are, his devotion to people, his humanity, his exquisite writing, in his uh, long collaboration with Connie Tamino to help us tease out these abilities nested in disabilities and how the arts were maintained um, th for so many people under so many different diagnoses. Yeah. And I would say just God bless him. God bless Oliver. Yeah. Oh, goodness. I have no segue, but I have a question. My next question, I guess. Oh, goodness. This is also great. I want to just sit in a classroom and just listen to you teach. Can I do that? Can I like pop into a class? <laughs> you or anybody that is listening would be most welcome to come to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. I teach uh, the psychology of music and I teach mind body wellness. And so I uh, am deeply into uh, positive psychology and the neuroscience related to contemplative practice um, and happiness. And so come, be happy. In fact, Fridays offer both courses. Tell us about mind-body wellness. Give us a, a preview of that too. That's for the music therapists. The psychology of music are for all uh, majors at Berkeley, but all music therapists have to take it. The mind-body wellness is looking at the biology that underlies stress, understanding what that is, and it gives us a whole different orientation to working with it, working against it. We can't change the stress, but we can change our reaction to it in the sense that we, our uh, fight or flight is reflexive and extremely powerful. But the relaxation response or rest and restoration must be intentionally practiced. So who were we in that breath between patient care or three minutes or five minutes? What can you fill them with so that you can be of service without giving up your own life force? So we studied the biology of stress, the biology of um, nirvana, looking at the contemplative practice, meditative research that's being done all over the world, which is also very exciting. We look at the biology of forgiveness we look at how that goes. We look to practice happiness. We look to really just, I try to set a beautiful table, a beautiful smorgasbord with all of these experiences to have, to share, to journal, so that when students move beyond the community that gets created when we're in school together, out into internship where you feel like you know nothing, you never should have gone into this profession, <laughs> You can open up that journal and remind yourself of your humanity, your grace and mercy to yourself as you learn this beautiful profession. So it's really about giving tools of resilience, helping each student create their own set of tools for resilience so that they can realize their dreams of coming into the profession and having longevity. That's a really beautiful gift to give students. I think a lot of times um, 
there's so much busy work and there's a lot to learn and all that but something like that is so important to have because our profession doesn't necessarily have great retention rates uh that's that's a shame there is really although i've gone through all the self-chastisement and you know the negative language um i've always loved being a music therapist and it, it does make me sad to be teaching all the time in the sense that I don't get to do the clinical work, I will keep a client on board, um, particularly a very uh, uh, unique or complex client, neurogenically really complex client. That I just love that. But um, it it is so satisfying, and I think everybody deserves to live a life of uh, with as much happiness as you can, with as much desire, with as much ability to be of service as the desire to be of service and I think it starts with yourself that was so well said thank you I don't feel very fluid tonight because the semester hasn't started and I have I have been um blissfully quiet um this summer so it's helping me get back in the saddle (laughs) I'm glad I'm glad so I'm gonna circle back um, because you you have you're dual credentialed in speech language pathology, yes, which is amazing, and uh, not many people have that cre- that dual credential. Apparently, there are five of us that are duly credentialed. I'm the only one at the doctoral level, and for the speech therapy community specifically, the ASHA National Office, it's a little um, challenging for them. Even though my doctorate is in speech therapy, I teach music therapy. So in the issues of advocacy and legislation, um, I am more than happy to be supportive to both professional organizations to have better um, relations, boots on the ground, um, absolutely. So uh, if anybody is looking toward those issues, I'm more than happy to offer letters of support or anything that I can. Thank you. There's so much polarity. So it's it's awesome to see those balanced. Yes, I've I've always, even within the music therapy profession, when there was the polarity of RMTs versus CMTs, or the polarity that existed between creative music therapy, Nordoff Robbins, and NMT, I never want to see us use our beautiful energy and spin our wheels defending turf. So I have always felt that I was a bridge between art and science that, or whatever those polarities were, I was trained in Nordoff Robbins. I became an NMT early on. I saw the beauty of that. I um, uh, love to be able to bring the art to physicians and neuroscientists and to bring the neuroscience back to the artists. I feel that that is one of my strengths is to be that bridge builder. I'm willing to sit and listen Uh, and practice heavy lifting and listening um, and finding ways to cajole and compel one to see being um, connected because in the end, if we don't, it will always be our clients and patients that are hurt and that I won't stand for. That that polarity causes our clients and patients not to get what they deserve and not what they can benefit from. And to me, that's where it hits a wall. 
Yeah. And that's something our profession has always taken pride in is putting the client first. Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's a great way to, um, another important, I don't want to use the word argument, another important stance of why it's important we see the whole picture in our profession and our training. Uh, so we yeah. can give the best service to our clients. And I think it's turning away from throwing hot stones at one another and turning our eyes to the patient and away from um, the argument. I can see why ASHA has its back up against the wall. I can understand that. Um, we've been getting a lot of publicity. They, uh, yeah, we've been getting a lot of publicity. It's just putting their back up against the wall. And they also have a, um, a way of operating that is somewhat oppositional historically against OTs or these are what other um, senior professionals in speech therapy have told me. So I don't think we should feel alone in that, but I also don't want that to uh, keep us from looking at doing the good work. And I think, frankly, it will be a long time, if ever, for there to be any top-down evolution in this. But I strongly, strongly believe in top and bottom-up revolution by working with your speech OTPT colleagues by presenting with them at their conference, by letting them know how fruitful working together has been for you. Um, you hope it is for them. You're checking in with them. You take them to lunch. You pick up the tab. It's tax deductible. What are all <laughs> of those? <laughs> try to work all the angles. What are those kindnesses? What are those relationships that we can build where we can see that people are served better in collaboration, I think, I believe more on the change that can happen with boots on the ground, most definitely, or stilettos or whatever you're wearing. I can't imagine being a music therapist in stilettos. No, not at all. Or a speech therapist. <laughs> no, goodness, no. hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Kathleen. So many good nuggets of wisdom in there and her passion for the profession, her excitement to do what she does and her ability to recall information from research that she's read, um, things she knows about going on and then intertwine them together is absolutely inspiring. I wish I had that kind of memory recall. So definitely take the time, self-reflect on some of the things that she has said and how you can incorporate them into your own practice and also how they relate to some of the expertise you have. I think this is a great conversation example of how everything is intertwined. So tune in next week to hear the second half of my conversation with Kathleen. In the meantime, if you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, or if there's someone you want us to reach out to, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at musictherapychronicles.com. Music